This is Spade, Spoon, Soul, a podcast about all the ways food intersects with our faith from seed to spade to spoon. Hi, I'm Jennifer Baskerville Burroughs, and I'm the Bishop of Indianapolis, and I am so delighted to welcome you to the podcast. We are set up for a great show for you today, and so I'm hoping that you're ready and hungry to listen in. And I'm Brian Sellers-Peterson, and I'm coming from to you from Roslyn, Washington, on the land of the Yakima people. And I am duly blessed to uh, work with Good News Gardens, a ministry of the Episcopal Church uh, that operates churchwide, along with being the agrarian missioner uh, for the Diocese of Olympia. And so today we're going to be talking uh, with Craig Loya, who is the Episcopal Bishop of Minnesota, and Carrie Meyer, who um, is the priest farmer at Good Courage Farm in Hutchinson, Minnesota. I'll come back to Hutchinson in just a little bit. Thanks, Brian. I'm so excited for today's show, especially because I'm finding that the more we do this, the more priest farmers we meet. So it's been fantastic. I want to start off, though, by introducing my colleague, Bishop Craig Loya, who I understand just celebrated two years from your election as the bishop number 10, the 10th Bishop of the Diocese of Minnesota. And um, I'm so glad that you're in the House of Bishops and that you're in these conversations around food, faith, and farming. Thanks, Jennifer. It's great to be here. And yeah, this past Tuesday was the second anniversary of my election. And I get the pleasure of uh, introducing Carrie Meyer, who is a priest and a farmer at Good Courage Farm in Hutchinson, Minnesota, which is what I would describe as sort of West Central Minnesota, uh, not far from where I grew up in Mankato, Minnesota. And uh, my in-laws had an orchard, not in Hutchinson, on the other side by Darwin, which is where the largest ball of twine uh, is on display in Darwin, Minnesota. So if you ever get a chance uh, to um, go uh, to Good Courage Farm, please go see the ball of twine. But uh, uh, Carrie, before moving back to the Midwest, was a priest at St. Gregory of Nyssa um, Church in San, San Francisco. And um, we'll let her tell more of her story, but uh, let, let's get into it. Oh my goodness. As you'll find out, both Craig and Carrie, that we never have enough time. Um, I used to worship at St. Gregory and Nyssa 20 something years ago. Um, and so it's got such a deep um, place in my heart. So we're going to start off with questions about place, actually. Like all of us like to see and understand where we're rooted here. And so I would like to ask both of you to tell us about where you are rooted. Where, and you can interpret that as place or community in any way you might like to take it. Sure, I can start. Yeah, I've got, uh, I think I'm rooted in in two ways in this place. The first way is pretty straightforward. My wife and our two kids and I live in the uh, small town in southwest of Minneapolis. We live kind of at the place where the suburbs end and the farm country and prairie where Cary and Good Courage Farm are begin. So it's a lovely little small town that we've become deeply involved in and that we've fallen completely in love with. And so we're rooted in that part of the Minnesota prairie. And I think the second way that I'm rooted is as the Bishop of Minnesota, one of the things that has surprised me is how much I feel rooted 
in every corner of Minnesota. I really have come to feel like every part of Minnesota is a place that I belong to and that I love. And I think that's really true of bishops, that being a bishop is, on the one hand, you're a bishop for the whole church, but on the other hand, it is so closely tied to a particular place. And we have this extraordinary, stunning, incredibly diverse geography in Minnesota. And it feels in a real way like I belong to every part of it. So I feel deeply rooted in Minnesota as a place and as an idea. Oh, that's beautiful. I completely resonate with that, Craig. Thank you. And so how about you, Carrie? Well, so we we call um, we call Hutchinson home now here in Minnesota, and um, and the the ninety three acre farm um, that is kind of our our close orbit uh, is on the ancestral homeland of the Wapakute, and uh, and during the during the period of history uh, when European settlers were um, colonizing this place and, and making it into uh, their home. This this farm was also owned by Judson Hutchinson, um, who is one of the members of the, the founding family of the incorporated city of Hutchinson and, um, and, and, uh, and a singer and musician from the mid 1800s, uh, whose family was committed to making art to further the cause of abolition and suffrage um, and temperance. And so th that's sort of our, that's our context. Uh, it's important, I think, to acknowledge that we still really feel like transplants here. And so our roots are still finding their way into this soil. And most of the time that we've lived here, it's, uh, it has been during the pandemic. And so uh, putting down roots in a new place for, for all those folks who have um, made that leap during the pandemic, um, it's, it's really a challenge. And it's not because of the quality of the soil. It's, it's just because um, all of the things that nurture our rootedness um, have been kind of in a, in a moment of drought, I think, uh, during, during the pandemic. But, but we're really grateful to be putting roots down here. And, uh, and I am a Midwesterner. I was um, born and raised in Michigan. And I speak fluent Lutheran, and I make a mean hot dish. And so I, um, I, I kind of resonate with with what Bishop Loya said about feeling at home in any corner of Minnesota, which is uh, kind of an interesting location uh, to be at socially. Well, I'm going to want to hear more about that hot dish a little later on, just because you know, food. <laughs> so Brian, do you have a question? Yeah. So um, my question is, and you can go any direction you want. Um, and um, this is this is one that um, you might uh, want to scratch your head a little bit about first, but how does creation nourish your soul and creation in all its manifestations? It might be on the farm, it might be with other people. I think there are lots of ways that creation nourishes my soul. I would say maybe there's three ways in particular that I find that creation nourishes my soul. I grew up on the Great Plains in kind of the western part of Nebraska. So where I live now in Minnesota, in the southern and western part of Minnesota, really is kind of my heart's home geographically, the, the prairies and the farmland. 
and, and the plains are kind of my heart's home. And one of the things that I love about the prairie that nourishes my soul is the way that diversity is really critical to the prairie. So on, on, in a prairie ecosystem, you'll have, you know, hundreds of different types of plant and animal life. And not only do they all thrive, but they, they're really deeply interdependent, that they, none of them can thrive without all of the rest of them and the way that they work together. And to me, when I'm walking out on the prairie or in the, I was just saying before we started that I went snowshoeing uh, outside of Mankato this past Sunday after a visitation there. And when I'm walking on the prairies or the river bluffs and I'm looking at all of this diversity, it really does, I think, give a picture of what the beloved community looks like, where different types of beauty, uh, different types of giftedness, different charisms all depend deeply upon one another for life to thrive. So life on the prairie is fuller, richer, and more beautiful because of its diversity. So that's that's one way that creation nourishes my soul. I think another way that creation really nourishes my soul is in the cycles and seasons. That has become really important to me. You know, right now we're in the very middle uh, of winter here in Minnesota. So when I left my house yesterday morning, it was negative 17. And what I've come to appreciate about the Minnesota winters is that there's this incredible beauty to the way in which winter forces a kind of interiority. Like we're inside our houses more often because it's just cold. Uh, and the, all of that diverse, beautiful plant life is kind of underground during winter. It's all buried in snow. And there's a way in which that interiority forces us into, it can be brutal, but it forces us to do the deep tilling inside of our souls that is required for, for new life. So those are a couple of ways that I find creation really nourishes my soul. It's really beautiful. Appreciate that. I, I I can envision the landscape a bit, and I will just confess that while I'm I'm hoping to do a race in um, the Twin Cities in Minnesota in October, because it's the perfect time to be there for this kind of for running. Um, I I actually look to Minnesota for hope and inspiration to get through the winter. Now I'm in Indianapolis and we can't even complain about winter. It was two degrees, three degrees here yesterday, which is about as cold as it might really get. And it was, you know, it's over. So when I think about winter in Minnesota and the hardiness and the ways in which people lean into the seasons, um, particularly embracing winter, I, I find that that I think if y'all can do it, I can do it. And so as you speak about the interiority, the ways in which there's this inside looking time right now, like, so what is that, what comes up for you when you think about the hope for what's to come in the next season? Is this a time when you can really kind of dig deep as we look for spring and the foods that'll start popping out of the ground? I think so. I think that interiority forces, a, it's kind of an enforced Sabbath, you know, creation forces a Sabbath during winter because um, everything has to sort of lie fallow. It goes, it goes underground. And I think in my own life, that's, you know, a message that all of us need to hear 
And there's, on the one hand, there's ways in which Minnesotans are really good about embracing winter and, you know, you can't stay in your house for five months a year. So you've got to find ways to, you know, be outside and, and, and embrace winter. But on the other hand, it does, it does just mean some things are not possible in the winter and, and you're forced to sort of stop for a while and let go in a way that you're not fully in control of. So I think that's one of the ways that that interiority plays out for me is there's a there's a letting go there's a reminder that it might not feel good to me that it's cold but I can't do anything to change that you know no amount of effort or work on my part is going to change or shorten the winter so it's a way of really allowing myself to uh, remember that God is ultimately God and that sometimes I just need to slow down and I can't I can't do the things I can relate um, growing up not far. Uh, from where you are, both you and Carrie, um, you know, I haven't thought about sort of that growing underground, growing underneath the snow before. Thank you. Carrie, what about you? How does creation? I'm so grateful for the the beautiful way that the bishop just articulated so many of the things that I have also experienced here on this farm. I think that I think that daily, creation nourishes my soul um, through beauty. And, and in particular, I mean, there's, there's the waking up, um, you know, to prairie sunrises that just fill your whole range of vision, right? Everywhere you look, um, the sky is telling the glory of God. Um, and it's, and it's real big out here on the prairie. And, um, and that's how I start my day is, is in beauty, just about every day. And, and also, um, in the sort of, the sort of superfluousness of the beauty in God's creation. Um, you know, I think about how here on this, on this little farm, we, we grow 76 kinds of apples and there don't, it's not necessary that there are that many different delicious flavors for us to experience, right? Like things don't need to taste as good as they do, but there are there are experiences of beauty that I had not encountered before I tasted the fruit of this farm um, or before I encountered the creatures that are here um, in this land. And so um, so most certainly beauty um, again and again, and 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 there's a there's a quality to the beauty of creation when we get to when we get to encounter it in places like um, like the farm or like a woodlot or a wetland where the elegance of creation is is so apparent, um, and the the wisdom uh, and and just the glory of God's mind uh, is is there for us to witness every day. And so definitely beauty. Um, and, and beauty that's available, I think, to all of our senses when we encounter creation. I think in, in, in our lives, I think we have a lot of encounters with the kind of beauty that we can take in through our eyes and through our ears. Uh, but when you really spend time surrounded by God's creation, there's so much, so much beauty available that you can feel and that you can taste and that you can smell. Uh, and I feel really grateful for that every day. And that beauty is in part, like the bishop so beautifully described about the diversity of the prairie, that beauty comes from a, f a fittingness. 
of every living thing uh, to the place and time where it finds itself, right? That that there, there's that diversity that is interrelated and interconnected and interdependent. And when you when you have an opportunity to encounter that regularly and to really pay deep attention to how how an, an insect and a bird and a plant that you might not have imagined as uh, as inextricably connected that they are that their lives depend on one another um, and that everything plays a life giving role in the in the ecology of the of the prairie and. For me, I think that's encouraging um, because when I see a world in which every living creature, great and small, belongs and has a role, um, it's hard for me to lose faith in my having a place um, in God's world and in my having a role to play um, in the flourishing of all things. And um, and I think the other way that that the farm nourishes me Although this is a this is a this is a difficult difficult way to be fed, um, is in the unavoidable connection between suffering and joy, um, and and we've been revisiting the writings of Archbishop Tutu, um, and just the the reality that suffering is what carves out in us a space for more and more joy. Um, creation is. Um, like the bishop said, creation is brutal and it's on a farm. It, it can be brutal in like every season in, in fresh new ways. And it's like, wow, I didn't know that we could lose something in springtime. I didn't know that we could suffer like this in the, in the midst of summer. But, um, you know, there's, there's no way to be as astonished and glad at a nest of fledgling wrens um, unless you have watched another nest disappear to the crows. And that connection between suffering and joy, as difficult as it is, um, is present in our encounters with creation. And, and I think it reveals um, so much to us that helps open up the, the, the glory of Christ's life and suffering and death and resurrection, too. It's just... Um, it's just written on creation and and we can read it day after day. <laughs> I thank you for that. Um, I feel like I'm on retreat a bit as I'm imagining what the, that landscape looks like and those spiritual connections. I think there's so much wisdom there. And I just want to note what, what I'm finding in this conversation to be interesting is that Minnesota is generally, I mean, places have their own reputations, right? So when you think about Minnesota, it's probably not seen as the hotspot of diversity. And yet it is so much more diverse in so in every way than folks would realize. And so as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking about diversity on the prairie, which is, I will confess as a city kid from New York, like I, I don't even know, know, I know a little bit more about what that means because of this conversation, but I'm like diversity on the prairie, that's not an oxymoron. So anyway, to to hear how this, how the, you know, from the ecological standpoint to the seasons, to the people on this land, from the people who were originally on the land to the present, like all of this paints this picture of Minnesota, which makes it so much more rich and full than I think uh, many of us who are not from there or who have been there can imagine. Jennifer, you're going to have to go a little early for that race in October and run some of those prairie 
back roads out by Hutchinson. Yeah, well, I'm going to have to. I mean, we've <laughs> um, we have good friends in the diocese of Minnesota, in the Episcopal Church in Minnesota. Excuse me, and so um, have been there for vacation, but need to venture out a little further than we've gone for sure. So, um, you know, here's the next controversial topic, though. You talk about joy and suffering. Let's talk about the food. I've never had hot dish. I'm going to come out as a like I've not. I've, I've heard about it. I see fights about it on Twitter. I know it's blowing your mind. <laughs> I've eaten like all kinds of things, but I've never had hot dish. And for some reason, when I've come to Minnesota, no one has said, "Here, let us prepare this meal for you." So let's talk about let's talk let's talk about the food. I mean, you might want to just tell people what hot dish is for those of us who don't already know, and then would love to hear from each of you about the the dish that makes you sigh with comfort as you think about it or as you enjoy it. So, what's hot dish, and then what what makes you swoon? Yeah, I'm not sure. This is probably a horrible thing for the Bishop of Minnesota to admit, but I'm not sure I could define hot dish. Uh, I know it when I see it, but I'm not sure if I could tell you the the way to define it. Um, you know, hot dish, I think it sort of refers to anything where you throw a bunch of ingredients together and you cook them in the oven together in a single in a single dish, you know, which is probably a terrible definition. One of the things for me, and I'm being pretty serious now that was most heartbreaking in terms of how I entered into this role as bishop. You know, I, I, I was ordained right in the midst of the early pandemic. And one of the most heartbreaking things is when I was elected, I was so, I felt so called to Minnesota in particular that I had big dreams about spending my first year or two, like eating my way across the diocese. And uh, because that's so much of how you become rooted in a place and connected to people. And so I've had shamefully little hot dish in the time that I've been in Minnesota, just because the pandemic has limited our abilities to eat together in, in large groups. Um, what I will say about the food that nourishes my soul is that I come from a Mexican family, a family of Mexican immigrants. And so my grandmother's cooking was always um, the food that, you know, that, that is my childhood is my grandmother's cooking and particularly tamales. So anytime I can get tamales anywhere, uh, it, it, you know, and my dad and I, whenever my dad comes to visit, we're always on a hunt for like, where can we find good tamales? So that, that's probably the food that most deeply connects me to my family and to my childhood and that, that roots me uh, in, in who I am. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, and I'm just going to do you a solid and say, Episcopal Church in Minnesota, when we come out of the pandemic, do not overload your bishop with hot dish. <laughs> Take it easy on him. Go easy. <laughs> Thanks for looking out for me, Jennifer. That's yeah, super helpful. I got your back. Yeah. <laughs> Carrie, what about you? I'll say that the the food that the food that comforts me deeply um, is basically a, a fried potato in any form, um, and uh, and I'm a big big fan of latkes, and uh, and we're kind of tickled to be able to make latkes um, from the food food that we produce here on the farm and that our nearby neighbors produce. You know, so we we've been kind of tickled to grow our own potatoes and have our own duck eggs and our own green onions and our own applesauce and we just have to swap with neighbors for sour cream, and that's been and that's been uh, really delightful to have kind of an unlimited supply of latkes all year round. Um, so if you fry me a potato, um, I, I will be a, a happy 
farmer priest. But uh, but Bishop, your your mentioning tamales brings to mind one of the very first meals that we had on the farm that was produced entirely from this land and from our labor, and um, and it was kind of mind blowing. And it was it was tamales. Um, we uh, we lived in Oakland for um, for six years before we came back to to Minnesota and. You used to be, I mean, uh, there were abuelas who rode around our neighborhood like on tricycles with coolers on the back and you could buy tamales like any time of day. And they were they were like bar none, um, the, the, the tastiest. But when we came to this farm, there, there was an occasion where Jen made a meal and um, and everything that was in those tamales came from this place. And, uh, and we sort of joked about what the recipe would look like for that particular batch of tamales. And it was, it was kind of like, so try to grow Mandan bride meal corn in Oakland and fail, but save a few seeds and carry them across the country to Minnesota. And uh, when you get to Minnesota, till the land and plant the, the meal corn and uh, then spend a winter uh, making wood fires and then realize that you have all the ash you need to nishtamalize the, the corn. And then get some eggs for hatching and hatch some chickens and tend them for an entire season and then slaughter them um, as humanely and with as much gratitude as you can and, uh, and then stew them in the tomatoes that you grew and uh, the hot peppers and the onions that you grew. And I mean, long story short, we realized every time that the people who love us cook for us, there are a thousand other hands and hearts and lives that have gone into putting that meal in front of us. And it was kind of an amazing experience um, to, to be at the heart of that meal and to be on the land that yielded all of the goodness that was on our plates. Um, so, so Bishop, I hope that we'll have you out to the farm for some tamales. We'll uh, we'll try to do right by them. You just named the time and I'm there. I, I want to put in a plug as long as we're talking about the food at Good Courage Farm. So for all of the listeners, when you come to Minnesota and make your retreat at Good Courage Farm, you will not find a better meal. My family and I spent an evening at Good Courage Farm in uh, the summer and we got to make, you know, um, wood fire oven pizzas and all of it was from the farm. And it was one of those particularly memorable meals of my life. Oh my God. Okay. I'm just, <laughs> the sabbatical I didn't get, I, that I wanted to have a few years ago was about um, staying on a farm. And I think I'll be in touch about that. Sure. Sabbatical next year. So I'm loving that. As a true Minnesotan, I have to chime in here because the most famous hot dish is of course, tater tot hot dish. And the first time it was written down in a recipe was in a, of course it was a Lutheran church cookbook, but from Mankato, Minnesota. I wish oh, I could yes. say it was the St. John's Episcopal cookbook, but I think it was Bethlehem Lutheran, but uh, tater tot hot dish um, can't go wrong with it. But now before we have to sign off, um, this is an opportunity for the two of you to share, you know, what are some of the essential resources for our triple S uh, audience um, that you, you want to share with us? And this is a great opportunity for shameless 
plugs. Actually, any kind of plugs, you know, from, you know, there's so many things um, in Minnesota uh, that, that I think that our audience can benefit from, but especially talk a little bit more about Good Courage Farm. My first introduction, um, and this was during a, a really hard time in my life, I had to uh, fly back to Minnesota to be with my family as, as um, we said goodbye to my mother. And I took a short trip up to Hutch uh, for pie and prayer. And I will always remember the pie, but I will also uh, have wonderful memories of your silo uh, where we got to pray inside. So talk, uh, talk about it, whatever you want. Well, pie and prayer, um, Pie and Prayer, that season when the pandemic gave us a little bit of a break and we were able to gather and um, and actually eat food together, albeit outside, and sing together. Oh my word, how much we've missed singing together. Pie and Prayer was um, one of those experiences of shared worship that um, that sustains us even now and that confirmed that, that we we were attending to the Holy Spirit when we made this crazy leap um, back to Minnesota and bought a farm. And, uh, and to gather with folks in, um, in such a crazy, unusual, but intimate space to be able to sing and pray. Um, and then to be able to just eat pie. I mean, pie is joy, right? And um, so that was, that that's, I think, going to be at the center of our our hospitality charism in the season to come. And we're super excited. We're hoping that the pandemic will allow us to, to be able to eat together and, um, and pray together. And, you know, a lot of the work that we do on this farm um, is to raise food so that we can share it with other folks who do food-based ministries so that we can find partners so that we can share those 76 varieties of apples and, um, and glorious table grapes that people can hardly believe grow in Minnesota and, um, and varieties of pears that I had never heard of before I came to this place. And we want to be able to give all that food away. But there are things on this farm that grow um, that it's been harder to figure out how they would incorporate into a food justice ministry. You know, like our our neighbors at the McLeod County Food Shelf, you know, we, we figure are, are not lining up because their family is low on gooseberries. So we had to figure out um, what's our whole entire field of gooseberries going to do um, for the for the glory of God and the good of God's people. And uh, and the answer got real clear real quick. Um, and that is pie. And so we can't wait to find folks who want to grow fruit with us and harvest that fruit and make it into pie so that every time that we gather to be together in fellowship um, or to be together in prayer, um, we also get to just share in the joy of fruit plus grain. So that's something we're really looking forward to. Yeah, I I don't know that I can plug anything more than Good Courage Farm and Carrie and Jen. Uh, Carrie's one of the most extraordinary priests that I have ever known, and she is inspiring a movement around food and creation and justice and beloved community in Minnesota. And I'm very hopeful that that movement will spread way beyond Minnesota. Uh, I don't know of anyone else who is doing more 
to invite all of us to join God in reforesting the world with faith and love. So come come to Minnesota. We would love to have you come to the farm, eat some pizza, eat some pie, um, pick some apples. It's a it's a wonderful, wonderful place. I will uh, echo that. Um, my first awareness of all of these issues started at General Convention in Minneapolis in 2003 at a gathering of people interested in all of these connections. And so I would love for Minnesota to continue leading in this way. And I am grateful for the ways that you've spoken about Good Courage Farm and what you're up to and hope to get to visit soon. And I hope folks will um, come up and visit you. Once we get out of this particular part of the pandemic, I think folks will be making a beeline for places like Good Courage because they nourish us in so many ways. And so thank you for what you do. We'll be so glad to have Folks, and I'll just say briefly that um, that uh, one of the things uh, that is just a, a lucky blessing on the farm is that the well house is now converted to a comfortable little um, cottage. And so if folks are looking for an opportunity to do some farm work and get away, um, we love to have folks come on work stays. Um, but also it is our privilege, thanks to our generous supporters, um, to be able to offer hospitality in particular to community organizers and leaders and clergy um, who are feeling uh, worn down by this season of challenges on so many fronts in our, in our society come on out and just enjoy some Sabbath rest on the farm um, and take in that beauty and that diversity and, and be nourished. And uh, we'll be so glad to, to serve you a slice of pie and coffee whenever you need it. So go to Good Courage's website, which is a great website address. It's goodcourage.farm. Goodcourage.farm. I didn't know farm was uh, an actual uh, appendage to a website. So very cool. All right. Well, thank you all. This concludes our episode of Space Spoon Soul and um, also known as Triple S. We want you to let you know that you can find out more about Spade Spoon Soul on the Facebook page, or you can email us at spadespoonsoulpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any comments or suggestions about what might be nourishing your view in mind, body, spirit as it regards the soil and the stove spoon cooking creation all of these things that we love to talk about so thanks to our producer uh, derek weston uh, who's a community organizer a presbyterian pastor urban farmer filmmaker and uh, jay sidebotten who did the art for our website along with uh, ryan lee who is from st paul minnesota and happens to be my brother-in-law uh, for the the wonderful music for the intro and the outro Until next time, friends, we hope that you'll find ways to connect your soul to your spade or spoon or both. Be well.